Good morning. You're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, I've got three major points for you. Why you need an incident response plan, why you need a certified VCSO, and why you need to understand how data is being handled in your organization. Now, those of you who listened to the November 19th podcast I did with breach attorney Spencer Pollock, you know that he stated that 90% of the breaches that he had been involved with in terms of you know, being a breach attorney uh, over the prior 12-month period, 90% of them would have been non-reportable had the data been properly encrypted. That's a pretty huge statistic. So imagine taking a situation that is a company massively adverse, fi- adverse financial impact and productivity impact to a company, and 90% of that risk can go away simply by properly encrypting the data. So this is something that should be focused on as a mitigation that needs to be done for sure, (laughs) because that's a big bang for your buck right there. All right, let's dig in. First, I want to talk about what is a CVCSO? Well, a CVCSO is a Certified Virtual Corporate Information Security Officer. I'm of a very staunch opinion that you don't need a corporate technology officer. You, do, you don't need a corporate information officer. You don't need CIOs and CTOs. What you do need is a CISO. Now, the vast majority of businesses out there are not large enough to be able to hire a full-time internal CISO. And then the question is, even if you are large enough, can you find a CISO to hire who wants to work at your company? Because maybe they don't want to. You know, I mean, that's another thing, right? Even just because you have the money, um, which CISOs get paid quite a lot of money. So the probability of you hiring one internally is not that high not only because of the cost, but also because they probably don't want to be a full-time internal CISO at some sort of organization. You know, does Pepsi have one? You're darn right, Pepsi has one. You know, Procter & Gamble, yup, they've got an internal full-time CISO. But the majority of organizations do not. The majority of organizations need a virtual corporate information security officer. Now, there is value to the certification. There is a value to somebody who's certified in that. Uh, It's more important, though, that they have at least 20 years of experience doing that kind of work. There are people that will disagree with me on that point, and they will say things like, well, actually, for a really small organization, the only thing that's really needed is somebody who's a CVC, so level one or two, for example. And that's not, in my opinion, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable making a, a recommendation that um, most organizations are going to be well served by somebody that doesn't have adequate experience. And a part of it is it's not because I have anything against those folks. It's because I think that the, the position of the CISO is very much so one who needs to be able to offer tangible, functional, 
strategic and tactical, very, very highly technical solutions to problems. Without the experience and without the high levels of technical ability, it becomes an even harder thing to do. Because being a CISO is already a challenge in that there's a lot of compliance to navigate. There's a lot of nuanced, unique business processes and business risk that's extremely unique to each organization. And clearly the people, the personalities, and the politics are extremely unique to each organization. And ultimately, the only way that anything actually gets better is if someone can navigate those complexities and lead through change through an organization when oftentimes the CISO doesn't actually have the authority to institute that change unilaterally. Okay, So they have to do a lot of management by consensus and a lot of persuasion. And... <clears throat> Even somebody who has technical skills may not have all of the political savvy to do that. So uh, there are some certification programs now for uh, VCSOs. So that is a fantastic improvement in the market. Um, but you know, just because somebody has it does not mean they're equivalent to someone else, right? Do some homework there. What I can say for, for sure emphatically is that having some CVCSO is better than no CVCSO, okay? Because you are at least getting somebody who has a clue about a viable process that should be used. And they have a clue about what standards should be and uh, what compliance is and where risk comes from and how to help you understand how to quantify and prioritize those risks, right? So. Some CVCSO is better than no CVCSO. So whatever you do, get one. Okay, I happen to be one. Give me a call if you need help. And uh, with this podcast here, I will post. Uh, I will post out the uh, links to a couple prior podcasts that go into some more detail on this. Uh, let's move on to the topic of incident response plans. hundred percent of organizations now are needing incident response plans. I mean, I've seen this as a requirement even for the smallest of organizations. You could have three employees and your insurance company is telling you that you need an incident response plan. All right, so you're gonna be requested in that incident. First off, you probably don't even have an IRP template, okay, because most organizations don't. And please don't just go out to the internet and grab any old one you want. I can tell you that my team went through the effort of looking at probably 20 different templates and we hated them all. <laughs> we ended up having to um, put together our own version that we thought was much more well-suited and, and accurate uh, to our clients' needs. And you know, so now we have a lovely template and we're able to deploy that to our clients a, a lot faster. And um, in addition to that, um, you, you, you're still going to have to identify who is going to play the role of various key personnel that are in uh, that particular IRP, okay? So 
sum is listed, who's your IT technical staff? Who is the incident response manager? This is going to be the person who oversees the, that incident response. And then the IRP asks for who's the CIO? Who's the IT director? Who are your stakeholders? Who's the finance director? Who's your legal representative? Who's your communication manager? And now who is your human resource manager? So it is possible that you could say your IT technical staff is your managed services provider, for example. Um, you could say that they're filling the role of IT director and CIO as well. And clearly the business owners and the board of directors, the heads of business units would be your stakeholders. Uh, most assuredly, each organization has a finance director. You know, at the bare, bare minimum, that's going to be the business owner themselves. Uh, you could apply the same thing to who's the HR manager. Now, you get to a realm of who's your legal representative and who's your communication manager, which is the person responsible for public and client announcements and communication. Please, please do not assign the business owner to that. That better be your breach attorney. If you don't have a breach attorney, you better get one. Because if you're looking for a giant pile of liability, then go ahead and try to take on public facing communications associated with incident response. Um, that's a pile of liability I'm not interested in. And most organizations don't have full-time internal corporate counsel. And even so, um, while they could fulfill the role of the legal representative, are you sure you want them to be the communication manager? These are things you need to think through. A final point on the IRP here is the big matzo ball question, which is who is the incident response manager? Now, I can tell you that in order to navigate an effective incident response, a person needs to have training to do this. They need to have training, tools, and a heck of a lot of emotional savvy and emotional control, lots of emotional intelligence uh, to be very good communicators, very good at project management, task management, people management. They need to be very inoculated against stress. And I would argue that your CVC so should hold that role. Because if you don't have a person who is your instant response manager who is experienced in all of those things, uh, then you're probably going to have a problem. Uh, now, you could take a different approach and you could actually hire in advance an incident response company and have a contract with them to do exactly that role. And that is possibly an approach that is suitable for some organizations to have in advance. Most likely that proactive relationship is going to cost you twenty-five dollars to $35,000 a year, if not more. And that's even if you don't even use them for much of anything. That's just for the benefit of having the luxury of being able to call them. Now, granted, when you do have that relationship and you do contact them and you, you, know, you had that proactive relationship built with them, they tend to knock it out of the park for you, right? So if if you can actually afford to have a proactive relationship with a forensic incident response company, uh, great. 
Now, there are some other challenges in terms of navigating that. And uh, those other challenges are that, you know, you may have a bit of a conflict going on there where your cybersecurity insurance company wants to pay for XYZ company. And when they pay for XYZ company, you can rest assured that that forensic incident response company does not work for you. They work for the insurance company. So you need to have your own relationship with an incident response company if that is who you want to be your incident response manager. Otherwise, I would encourage you to have a contract with your CVC so and include incident response manager in that. Now, you're not going to get that for free, but you had to have the relationship with the CVC so anyways. So, you know, unless you've got a really large organization, and when I say really large, I'm talking over 100 million a year in revenue. You know, everybody else, they need the CVC. So, do they need the, you know, the proactive relationship with the forensic incident response company? Well, I think it depends on the nature of your business. You know, if you get to uh, 35 million and you happen to be a, a financial services company that's got a lot of, um, you know, risky, high risk data, then uh, yeah, darn well, you should be doing that. Now, on the other hand, if most of the data that you have, it, you know, like you're getting to 35 million by um, shipping product, because maybe you're a transportation logistics company, then you probably don't really have a lot of sensitive data and your incident response company relationship is really just going to help you in terms of recovery. Now, there are other ways to effectuate that that your CVC so can help you work through. Okay. So it's very contextual. And you notice that I'm not saying anything about the number of employees because the number of employees that an organization has does not correlate to the risk that they have, nor does it correlate to um, you know, the type of solutions that they need or the number of employees that they have, right? I mean, you could have a financial services company that is huge in terms of revenue, but they've only got 50 employees. Well, another company is going to have 250 employees for the same revenue, right? It just depends on the business model that they have. All right. Now I'm going to move on to giving you a quick little primer on some types of data so that we can talk about uh, some uh, of these issues so that you can spot this as either a business decision maker or just as a consumer of the services of others. So types of data, real world examples of data insecurity I'm going to talk about after this. So I need you to understand some definitions here. First, uh, protected health information is your health information that's very personal and don't think of it as just stuff that the medical providers have on you, you know, healthcare organizations. A lot of people think that that's the only people that have that data on you. And it's like, well, no, exa not exactly. So if you work for an employer that had you do drug screening as part of your, um, you know, job applicability or, or your job eligibility, well, that's PHI, that's medical data. Your drug screening results are medical records. So it could be anybody, right? A protected, um, personally identifiable information is your name, contact information, such as your address, telephone number, email address, 
then your social security number, I-9 information, uh, potentially a copy of your passport or driver's license, or just the numbers from your passport or driver's license, any non-public photos of you that they may have taken as part of that validation. Uh, what about your direct deposit bank information? What about your salary at your job? Oh, yeah, that is PII as well because it's non-public and it's certainly intended to be confidential. So who has that kind of information on you? Well, anybody that does HR recruiting or has employees is typically going to have that kind of data. Now, I would encourage any small business out there to use a professional employer organization and not store any of this data themselves. They should outsource that entirely. Some HR management firms have areas inside their SaaS platforms, their software as a service platforms. And um, those, those areas are used for uploading documents and storing them securely so that all of that data is in the uh, secure, encrypted, protected, um, you know, typically a lot better secured than whatever is going on on premise on that, um, that employer's environment anywhere. And then, but the business, you know, the business, the employer has to have the business processes that support not storing any of that data, right? So if, if they took a copy of some information from you for the purposes of onboarding you as an employee and sure they go and they upload it into the SAS, but then they didn't destroy that data right away um, then it's somewhere's bouncing around and that is problematic that's why uh, i don't like that approach but we'll talk about that more in a bit uh, the next type of like really sensitive data out there is going to be payment card information and um, that's not typically found outside of really large organizations or uh, orgs that are actually doing um, merchant processing, okay? So let's talk now about a couple examples, a good process and a bad process. So I'm gonna tell you about the good process first, and then we'll talk about the bad process. So this is uh, an applicant tracking and employee onboarding system example. Now, the security of these systems generally is only as good as the security of the company that's actually using them. And please understand that this is not just the company that you apply to or that gave you an offer letter that you accepted and you became an employee, but whoever their upstream counterparties are as well. You know, are they using a PEO? Uh, are they handing off data to somebody else like uh, a work opportunity tax credit processing company of, you know, where is that data actually going? And, um, you know, I, I have my concerns about data existing and being disclosed to third parties anyways. And some of that you just can't get around because you would like to be employed. Where I do think there's a significant improvement that's very easy to achieve is to reduce to as much as, you know, as close to zero, the number of counterparties that the applicant themselves need to provide data to in order to complete the process if it was fully self-service, okay? So let's, uh, 
let's think about that. And then we also need to think about how people are handling that data throughout the flow of that, that process. If you completed some paper documents for somebody, you know, were they disposed of properly? Were they shredded after they, would, they were scanned and sent someplace? Okay. So let's cover the good process. As you interact with the recruiter or the prospective employer, all of that data goes directly into an applicant tracking system, which is SAS, software as a service. And you put it in there yourself. So the applicant submits that data themselves right into the SAS platform. The only thing that may be emailed would be a resume. And that's up to you about how much personally identifiable information you put on the resume. In fact, a lot of people are not putting home address on there. They may state, they may list the state that they're a resident of and, you know, telephone number and email address. And that's generally perceived to be more than adequate. So uh, other data is any assessment results. You know, maybe you went through an assessment as part of this process. Uh, or any other applicant data, any, any of that was directly input via, you know, API synchronization into the ATS. So it went directly from you, the applicant, into the system, and that's it. Nobody else, you know, no human other than you needed to touch that data. Now, the ATS in this case is SaaS-based with a very secure company. And then all of the accounts that access that data are on a need-to-know basis only, on a role-based access control uh, basis, and all of the accounts have multi-factor authentication enforcement on them. So if you submit uh, work opportunity tax credit information, you're submitting that directly to the WOTC processing company. Uh, your PII is all submitted directly by you into the HR enrollment or the payroll system. No intervention from anybody else and you're submitting it into a secure platform. Your employer does not need to download anything out of that system or retain it because it's stored in the HR management system, nor does the employer ever need to have a copy of the information that you submitted because it's in the HR management platform. So they don't need to store it anyplace else. So it's not in their email, it's not on their servers, it's not in their PCs, they didn't print it, they didn't email it around, and because they didn't print it, nobody needs to have um, concern about those pieces of paper getting shredded. All right, now let's pivot to the bad process. Let's assume you're an applicant and the company that you're applying to uh, has you fill out a bunch of paper forms. So you fill them out and then they scan those forms with a scanner and they send those files somewhere. Well, let's say they're scanned to an insecure location on the internal network. Now, uh, my perception is that it's probably an insecure location because it probably doesn't have multi-factor authentication to access it. Um, there's entirely too many people that have access to it. And it's probably not on a super hardened server uh, either, right? So to me, that is uh, a location whose security profile is inconsistent with the data that's being stored there. Uh, furthermore, that location on the server is not encrypted. And the data as it was transmitted to the server was probably not transmitted uh, securely using encryption. You know, what's called transmission, like they call it basically encryption, um, uh, you know, for your connections and the transmission of the data versus encryption at rest, which is when it's stored and it's 
a static file sitting there. So you actually need two different types of encryption whenever you're thinking about, you know, encryption. Okay. So let's get a perspective over what is actually in this data set. So your direct deposit information in there. So this is your full banking account number, your routing number, your name, address, all your I-9 verification information, social security number, driver's license number, your birth certificate, your birth date, copies of your signature, your W-4, and uh, quite possibly and most likely your offer letter, which includes your salary and benefits. Yeah, scary poopoo. -poo. <laughs> okay, so other concerns are, well, what happened to the paper copies of the forms after you completed them? Were they actually shredded the same day? Does the company have policies how that data is going to be handled? Do they tr train their people to shred that um, paperwork? And uh, what was the process? You know, maybe instead of having, um, you know, maybe the process is fine, scan it, it goes to a file share, somebody retrieves it, and then they email it to a distribution list. I swear to God, this stuff happens. So they send it to a distribution list. Now it's in email. Now it's in like, you know, a whole bunch of people's email. One of those people maybe forwards that email to an external party. And they were doing that out of their own convenience, not because that external party needed to know anything other than your first name and last name, you know, and what business unit you were going to work for so that, you know, maybe they could provision a service for you or something like that. Um, you know, so as soon as a process is allowed to start insecure or to be insecure at any point, it is inevitable that human beings are going to mess that process up because humans are inherently lazy and they're looking for convenience. And most companies don't have adequate regularized training for all staff that handle that kind of data. So let's pivot to some challenges with document management platforms, because of course, where do you think this data is going? You know, in some cases it goes into a document management platform. Well, the vast majority of these as they are on premise are going to be like a SQL server and uh, with a thick client and the communications to and from that server over SQL are not encrypted in transit. Furthermore, the SQL databases themselves are not encrypted because the vast majority of applications do not support database encryption and very few IT people know how to set that up and how to maintain it properly. So probably in 98 or higher percent of cases, a premise document management system is going to have inadequate security. Now, this does not mean that everything that's out there that's cloud or SaaS-based is secure either. I mean, you could look at some pretty staunch differences between uh, you know, bad document management platforms versus a good document management platform like WorkOptima. Uh, the only reason that I think WorkOptima is a good document management platform is because the company's owned by Colin Ruskin and Colin cares about security. He cares a lot. He pays extra for security, okay? So, so it's, it's not anybody making him do it. He wants to have security. So, you know, how are you as an end user of that platform supposed to know that stuff? And I mean, especially when you're not really an end user of the document management platform, it's the company that you applied for a job at 
that is using that document management platform. Uh, let's wrap up with if you put a dollar figure to the cost of a breach and it's associated with the number of unique records that contain um, breach reportable information. Let's assume you had a half a million records in that premise document management platform database. Only half a million. It's not hard to get to that number. Even if you say it's a dollar a record, which actually the figures are higher than that, well, that would still be $500,000 of a breach penalty that your company would be paying. And that is an insane amount of money. So, you know, how many organizations out there can just afford to write a check for a half a million dollars in a penalty, right? This isn't necessarily something that your insurance company is going to help you with if you didn't follow standard compliance best practices, and that therefore led to the breach, you do not have a covered incident, okay? Storing data in an unencrypted fashion uh, that is of that category and transmitting it unencrypted, uh, that's not gonna be a covered incident under your cybersecurity insurance policy. You know, so <laughs> hopefully I gave you some thoughts to think about here, some things to contemplate about ways to be better going forward. Again, do give me a call if you need a certified uh, fractional CISO in your organization.